Welcome to NARAL's The Morning After. Each Thursday, our podcast brings you the latest on reproductive health care, progressive politics, and the fight to keep abortion safe and legal. NARAL's The Morning After is a production of NARAL Pro-Choice Ohio. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at ProChoiceOH. Enjoy the show! Hi, I'm Gabe. Hi, I'm Jessica. And I'm Jamie. Uh, Jessica Roach from Restoring Our Own Through Transformation. Yes. This is the root that listeners have heard us refer to on many occasions. Okay. Uh, you're, you're, <laughs> you're the first on the person wall. on the wall. Uh, I mean, it's Other than really, it's, it's you and Michelle Obama. Really? On the wall right here. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I don't even know what to say right now. <laughs> that's, that's huge. I, I had no idea, folks, at all. That's awesome. Thank you. Uh, yeah, it's it's your it's your picture from the cover of Columbus Alive. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, during <laughs> the sweet baby, sweet um, mecca. <laughs> it, it was a week of awareness. How how did that? It was Black Maternal Health Week. Yeah. It was our first annual Black Maternal Health Week. How'd that go? It was really successful. Um, we were able to do a series of events. Um, and really learn in preparation for next year. So we're starting to do that as well, because clearly this is something that we're going to do every year. Um, it, it allowed us to have some levels of visibility. One of the things that we're finding is is noticing that like folks will see us, hear about us, um, and then kind of kind of it will kind of drop off. So we're really understanding that we've got to do things to continue to increase the visibility while we're doing the work, mm-hmm. which can be a difficult challenge and balance considering that like when you're in this work, you never know when you're going to get called out. You never know what's going to happen, those kinds of things. But like, I have to, at the very least, give a shout out to Nationwide Children's Hospital because they were awesome about sponsoring the film when we did Death by Delivery and the trailer for Birth versus Black, which is the film that um, myself, um, Joya Career Perry, and a few of our colleagues were in. And uh, nationwide, if it wasn't for Nationwide Children's Hospital, like generous support, um, we wouldn't have been able to provide that opportunity for the community. So we're hoping that we're going to get an opportunity to work with them again for next year. That's awesome. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how Root started? Um, sure. Why are you here? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, Root is really an organization that has come out of our experiences. And so for me in particular, being one of the co-founders and now the executive director, um, it started because of my own birth experiences. And so it's been more of a lifelong journey. I've been involved in um, birth work, birthing justice, reproductive justice, advocacy um, over the course of probably 18 years at this point. I always measure it based upon when Jaden was born because Jaden was my preterm infant. Um, And she was a preterm infant even once all of what we call the social determinants of health were met. So I had a pregnancy previous to that. I had all of what were considered the risk factors and I had a perfectly healthy pregnancy. But it was only after I was a nurse and working inside of a larger institution and already had a house and had a partner, you know, like all of the things that they say prevent these issues for us in our community was when I actually had a preterm infant. And so by the time I had my third child, I made the decision that I was going to have the baby at home because there was something that didn't quite click with me when the, the when the excuse was given that like well you're African American and so you're just more at risk for these things but there was nothing else really in context at that point um, it was just your body's broken because you're black I mean that was that's kind of how it felt okay. in that way um, and so from that I started doing um, 
works around like being a, mid- a midwifery assistant, being a doula myself, really trying to engage and learn. I did a brief stint on a labor and delivery floor. I decided that that wasn't a good idea for me, <laughs> um, not at all in interactions. And then, um, you know, it got really, really intense because we didn't have as many of us. And I mean us as in um, black women that were doing mm-hmm. uh, doula work and midwifery work, at least above ground. Um, at the time in the state of Ohio, and there was a, a major situation that happened that kind of made me break. So I went to University of Illinois, Chicago, almost finished with my MPH, um, mm-hmm. finally. And um, there's also non-academic barriers that happen with that, but we'll get into that at a different show. <laughs> and um, came back, I realized that like, I couldn't run, there was no way to ever run away from it. Like, there's no way to buy ourselves out of this. There's no way to educate ourselves out of this. I can't run away from it. It's going to be everywhere we are. And it was really important for me to come back to the root of where Mm -hmm. the problems first really showed themselves. And so I had a ton of friends and colleagues that were either really interested in doing this work or had been like the mom or the auntie or the best friend that had attended their friend's births or had wanted to have their own um, birth experience wide spectrum of whatever that was, just being able to have the voice to say that this is what they're going to do. And so um, that's really how Root was born. This is something that we'd been talking about over probably a three or four year period. And then finally, last March, um, I had a conversation with a couple of colleagues and we filed to incorporate as a regular organization. Um, So we're a 501c3. Um, and we're considered a public charity in the state of Ohio because most of our funding comes from like folks. We'll put the link to donate. <laughs> yes, we will. Most of our support right now comes from the general public wanting to support mm-hmm. the work that we're doing. Um, and so it was really easy for us to ease in. It's kind of interesting because I was just at a meeting about the state of Ohio's looking for um, more agencies to do home visitors and they're talking about what their model is for home visiting and I was like but we do this already mm-hmm. well, and, and, and we have a lot of support you know yeah. I mean like we, we just came together I mean literally if we're talking about like years of experience we have like with all of us that are the first core of Root we have combined over 30 if you're like adding up all of our mm-hmm. years right. we have over 30 years of experience that just came into this group that already knew one another and was already basically backing each other up and doing the things that we're doing as a community and said, all right, well, let's just take this to the next level. So that's, that's how Root was born. Yeah. Well, and all those home visit programs there, you know, some random nurse coming into your house, like after everything's happened, it's not somebody you've developed a relationship with. And, you know, so that random nurse coming in is going to have medical experience and those kind of things, be able to talk, but it isn't going to know like who you were before and who you were during and won't be able to provide that kind of continuous support as well, like that a doula would be able to. Right. Well, so I will say two things to that. One, ODH has recognized that and they're expanding the home visiting model. So they're recognizing that it's that like evidence-based practice says that someone with a high school diploma can actually do this. Guess what? Mm -hmm. Because experience dictates that. Yeah. You are actually really good at being able to make those connections and relationships. They're also really finally recognizing what we call the perinatal period. Um, so all of our doulas are full spectrum doulas, which means we provide services across the board. If somebody needs it for pregnancy loss, if it needs it for um, miscarriages, and if it needs if 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 we have client that has needs for um, abortion access and um, support through those services, and then obviously, you know, our primary core right now, which is which is the birthing justice. Mm-hmm. Portion um, 
you know, we serve throughout the entire perinatal period. So often we're kind of the first point of contact when women initially find out that they're pregnant or families find out that they're pregnant because a lot of times they can't get into physician's offices until the ninth to 11th week or they may have gotten caught up with a a crisis pregnancy center that said that they were going to help with finding options and they really didn't. And so we find that we've get a lot of our folks like at that beginning point, and then we end up being with them beyond what is the first year. So that, right, that's part of reproductive justice is understanding that it's not just about having our babies live to be a year old. It's about one, preventing the circumstances that create the environment that they may not live to be one, which is reducing stress due to racism. Um, and having a full term, a healthy full term pregnancy. It's also knowing that like part of our processes is not just getting to that one year, but like what's going to happen when our kids are walking down the street Mm -hmm. and they get harassed by somebody or, you know, we live in a neighborhood where there may be some issues with, with conflict and, and violence, um, you know, and very, very real, which I'm always really open and honest about, like how does law enforcement violence as a public health issue impact our families disproportionately? Mm-hmm. So um, we were at yeah. a, we were at an event um, by uh, Innovation Ohio has a women's public policy network mm-hmm. uh, section. Uh, and just a uh, day or two ago, uh, they had an event at the uh, YWCA uh, and the woman leading it put it, so crystal clear in like the easiest terms. She just asked the question, is your neighborhood safe enough where you can take a walk? Uh Right. And it was like this light went off, you know, referring to all of the different issues that affect somebody's, Uh you know, in this case, cardiovascular health. It's all related. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's all related. I've been a nurse. That question was like so terrific. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Summed it up. Yeah. I mean, I've been a nurse. I am no longer a practicing um, nurse. Um, for some of my own fundamental reasons in that. Um, No issues, just to make that clear. (laughs) None at all. Um, Perfect track record. Thanks, folks, like in three different states. Um, But I'm no longer carrying a nursing license for some uh, some of those issues surrounding it. And and really, um, it gets back to, like, understanding the whole concept like we talk about all of these issues surrounding like social determinants of health. We talk about all of these things, like these things that impact our neighborhoods as if they're in silos. But the reality is, is that when you take a look at each individual neighborhood and then you take a look at it from a global perspective, infant mortality impacts our community, just like cardiovascular disease impacts our community, just like type 2 diabetes impacts our community. Right. I've worked in my, inside of my community for uh, intentionally for most of my nursing career, um, whether it was through home health or in the hospital, really wanting to be connected with us and understanding that like those, those will change your body physiologically. Like you can only have so much stress you can. And and when you wake up in the morning and your day starts with thinking about all the things that could potentially happen when you walk out the door, like that's just, it's a constant. It's the, when somebody upsets you or like if you get mad and for that moment you like feel your, the blood rushing to your head, mm-hmm. you know, or you feel like this racing of your heart. Like, think about that a hundred times over right. as a constant. Mm-hmm. It's going to break down your body and create some of those, those chronic illnesses that we're talking about, along mm-hmm. with all of the other issues with, like, lack of access to food mm-hmm. sources and all of those things. But interestingly enough, at least at that point, um, what isn't talked about is that, in particular in our population, 
even when all of those social determinants of health are met, quote unquote, like once the, I always call it the scarcity story. Nobody wants to talk about the benefit, but everybody wants to talk about our scarcity. Mm-hmm. But even once all of those things are met, we actually see that there, there's a wider division in like middle class from white women to black women as mm-hmm. far as like issues around preterm and low birth weight and research supports and our experience, which is more valid than anything else in the world, supports that. Um, it's because of those stress factors that we're now closer to consistently all the time. It's like we have to perform at 120% versus our counterparts and only have to really perform at 80. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it's really important to make sure that we point that out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you and I have talked a lot about like the fact that all of this research is great. You know, the USA Today thing that just came out, the oh, stuff yeah. from NPR last year about the danger of delivery and infant mortality and maternal mortality. It's good that the population, though, you know, the popular media is getting more into this. But, you know, you've talked about what you've seen, you've experienced, you've researched yourself kind of throughout your work in this field and how it's kind of like, uh, yeah, duh. Like, we've been saying these things have been happening over and over again. And, you know, things were finally playing. Yeah, it is kind of, it is sometimes that thanks for the memo. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so you mentioned my research, like as a, as an independent scholar, uh, it's always fun to use that word. So I'm like, I don't want to be tied to a, any one universe. I just want to do what we do. Um, you know, it, mine is all based in the structural determinants. So I do, uh, most of the research that comes out is um, all based around what is the 400-year timeline. So I'm, it's, and, it, and it applies actually to some principles that are fundamental to me personally, which is like the principles of Sankofa. You have to know where you've come from in order to move mm-hmm. forward. Like it's a, it's a um, understand where you come from and who you come from. And, and while 400 years is not our entire history, it does speak to the very unique history inside of the U.S. and some of the evolution of our own health and healthcare. And you can literally see, just in a short, you know, just to make it as simple as possible, you can literally see where there's different policies that are created, and then you see a corresponding change in health outcomes in particular ways. Like one of the ones I love to point out, not just, you know, not just in current context, because that's actually really easy. Um, But when we talk about uh, Provident Hospital in Chicago, which was the first all-black hospital Mm -hmm. um, in the North, in the United States and kind of the model of care. At one point they were considered from like old newspapers that I went through and all of that (laughs) stuff, like old school stuff, you know, I love newspapers. I'm not going to have them much longer, but I love them. Um, where it was, it was declared that that hospital had the best maternal infant health outcomes and it was all black professionals. It was black. It was purposefully started so that there was access for, for black women to be able to go to nursing school, for black physicians to be able to practice in, in groups, to be able to have, be treated. Because we couldn't go to all the hospitals yet, regardless of where you lived in the country, like Jim Crow wasn't just in the South. Yeah. Um, and we had the best maternal infant health outcomes. And so what ended up happening with that was that the rest of the city took notice that this was happening at Provident. They started to want to be patients in the hospital, but they didn't want to be treated by black physicians and black nurses. And so that's how the hospital started to become integrated. And you started to see with a policy change, mm-hmm. change in health outcomes. They weren't measured in the same way that we do it now, but you could definitely see that very distinctly. And so, you know, I pay a very close attention to 
things like population distribution Mm -hmm. and how gentrification impacts. So we do a lot of work around the um, Homeowners Loan Loan Corporation maps and um, regions that were redlined. And those are areas that were also green-lined, which means green-lined folks could buy homes in Redline. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, paying attention to that, we've had some stories that have come out of Columbus just by itself where, like, things have shifted. Wyland Park's infant mortality rate has decreased. And Near East Side's infant mortality rate has decreased. And so has the trend of population. Uh So if you look at, like, the very next zip code, you'll watch where, like, those numbers change and correspond with the decrease in one area and it'll start to increase in another. So, like, now we're looking at Reynoldsburg and Whitehall. Yeah. So, Yeah. I could talk about this stuff all day long. I could, I could actually <laughs> quote numbers. It's funny. Yeah, no, and, it's, and it really just shows what a complex problem it is. And I think one of the things that struck me, I think mostly in that USA Today piece, yeah. was that seems so solvable. So the whole point of it, and we'll put the link in the show notes so folks can read it themselves, with hopefully some kind of beverage because yeah. the rage that exists in my brain after reading it in my office a hour ago. If you um, like wine, make sure you have a glass. Yes. Was that women are dying, people are dying of hemorrhage and stroke just because medical officials aren't identifying and treating it fast enough. Like they're, they're not believing. Yeah, they're not they're believing, not believing it. Yeah, they're looking at hemorrhage and going, oh, that's normal blood loss. Or they're not believing and treating the high blood pressure or the headaches. Or one of the stories in there was a woman came in and complained that she was her, she could feel her heartbeat and her head was pounding and they made her wait in the waiting room for six hours in the ER and she died of a stroke. So, like, so there's those fixable things that should be fixable really easily. Just freaking treat people. And are actually like really important as far as our ethics are concerned. Uh-huh. Yeah. As medical professionals. One, number one is do no harm from a medical professional mm-hmm. standpoint. So, yeah. yeah. And then there's the bigger ones like you talk about, the like systematic rate. I mean, we're not going to dismantle the racial disparities in health without getting rid of racism and poverty. I mean, so those are kind of much longer term kind of we're going to work at it. But I think that the U.S. I think what the USA Today paper um, news article did, mm-hmm. at the very least, is talk about how you do start dismantling it because you literally mm-hmm. have to understand how you're upholding the system in order to do anything about it. Now, is that going to happen? I don't know, but I think that it's really. I think it was really provocative that it was the first time that I've seen in that way for mass media that very clearly stated it's nurses and doctors that are creating mm-hmm. harm. And as a nurse, that was really important for me. Like, there's, there's almost this code thing, too, where you, like, because of malpractice insurance, because of all of the other structure stuff that, that we also have to think about in mm-hmm. that way, you know, liability-happy issues when there really is issues with liability, over stress. Like, I'm, I'm going to speak from that perspective. Like, mm-hmm. I walk on the floor, and I'm only supposed to have five patients. Suddenly, I have eight, and, you know, everybody's got an acute thing that's happening, okay? So let's be real about that. It's, it's stressful, and we made a commitment. And the first part of that commitment is making sure that we listen and that we remember that just because we might have learned something in a book doesn't necessarily mean that it applies to any individual. And we find in particular with us as black people that we're ignored. And so if we start out with coming in with like a simple headache, 
but it's progressed over a period of time. And we're, especially in the postpartum period, in the immediate postpartum period, that needs to be addressed. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't even begin to get into, and I don't know that I'd be able to do it without like literally breaking down the multiple times that I've been in birthing rooms in the hospital where it was dangerous. It was extremely dangerous. And most people at that point don't know my credential. They don't know who, you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like, and I purposefully don't tell folks that unless I have to leverage it in some way, because I don't want to interfere with someone else's process either. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's, it's, it's incredible to me that like, it's, it's okay for, nurses and physicians to tell people, well, this is what you're going to do. Because last time I checked, our only job was to provide the information so that they could give consent. Mm -hmm. And it may not necessarily be what we agree with, but neither is like how you live with your partner. Do you, you know, Mm -hmm. do you, you can't assault your partner. You can't assault a woman in that very vulnerable period either. And it's also neglect and a form of assault to me personally to ignore signs and symptoms, to ignore patient voice and brush over it. And we see too frequently, now we see in the mainstream, but we see too frequently that that's how we die. Mm-hmm. And that's real. And so now you've just completely broken down the family. I, yeah. it's, it's outrageous. Well, and we saw in the news in the last year that being famous doesn't even protect you. Nope. I mean, Serena Williams came out with her story after she gave birth to her daughter about how she like went to the nurse's station and begged for heparin in a, in a CAT scan because she knew she had blood clots. Exactly. And they still brought a doctor with a Doppler in and didn't see anything and delayed that CAT scan and delayed the heparin to the point where she could have been in serious, serious trouble. She was by that point. She had several clots that they found on the CT scan. Like, yeah. Which yeah. goes back to the point that we were talking about earlier. That It has nothing to do with the social determinants Mm-mm. of health. I mean, and I'm not going to completely dismiss it. I, I have an issue with when that becomes the center of conversation because it's still a way to be able to pass off our experiences by saying that we're poor and we're unintelligent and, we, and we're always going to jail. And all. I mean, and that's real. Like that's, mm-hmm. I understand that those things disproportionately impact our community, but why do they? And that's where it gets down to the structures. Mm-hmm. And when you clearly have circumstances like her, like um, Shalon Irving, who you know we don't talk about as much, but uh, is really personal for me because she's a she was a public health commissioner, yeah, and she's gone, you mm-hmm. know. I, she clearly under uh, we've got women that we get to this place again. We can't buy ourselves out of it mm-hmm. because it doesn't matter, regardless of what our income is, regardless of what our education level is, regardless of whether or not we can literally like quote our chart and history off to you. You're still not believing us, which is putting us in a situation. That whole situation with Serena Williams could have gone a completely different way. Mm -hmm. She was incredibly lucky. Yes. And for other women, it has gone that way. Absolutely. Uh, Just to put some numbers behind uh, the, from the USA Today article, uh, this report showed that every year, 50,000 women across the country uh, are severely injured during birth. Mm -hmm. Uh, 700 women die. Um, and this isn't something that's happening globally. This is isolated, um, within the United States. There's a, an excellent graph. I'm going to put a little copy of it in the, the show notes where 
Germany's rate of maternal deaths is a pretty sharp decline. France has gone down. Japan's gone down. Mm-hmm. England and Canada are holding steady. And the United States just skyrockets. Yeah, yep. 26.4 per 100,000. Those are maternal deaths. Yeah. Um, and, and to put it even into more context, the, uh, the you know, it's stated clearly, like, we are the deadliest country. Mm-hmm. in the quote-unquote developing world mm-hmm. to have a child just from the birthing process itself. We're not even getting into the rest of the issues. Right. Just from the birthing process itself. To put it even into deeper context, our rates are sometimes higher than those in sub-Saharan Africa. So like all of the conversation around like non-developed countries and not having access and how we're so much better. Actually, no, not according to a lot of the statistics. And that also gets reinforced when you're talking about immigrant populations, where there's this like paradox where often immigrants will come to this country and they will have had better health outcomes in their own country than they will when they come here, in particular when it comes to maternal infant health. Mm -hmm. It's outrageous. Right. Yeah. And what we're seeing, I mean, I had a very, very interesting, we went to Belize last year and we stayed in this little tiny place and this, um, one of their workers drove us a couple hours away to some Mayan ruins. And along the way we figured out that his grandmother was the last midwife in there in the tiny little town that we were staying in. And the stories he had of his grandmother and the culture of the city. I mean, this, this one city, I mean, has, Belize has the same history as many of the other countries in mm-hmm. the Car- in Caribbean mm-hmm. where, you know, immigrants of color coming in and then white people shoving all of the people of the indigenous yeah. and the people of color who have, you know, immigrated, not necessarily immigrated, been forced there. Sure. Um, and so... It was really interesting because this little area that we were staying in, the town, the Ingriga that we were staying near, had managed to keep all the white people out. They had managed to like, hold their land yeah. and hold their culture. Yeah. And so we were having this really amazing conversation about his grandmother and everything else, but nobody took the tradition for her. So now they were having to go like two hours to the closest city to go to a hospital to have a baby. And what they're now seeing is increased... Um, poor health outcomes, increased C-sections because the doctors are afraid on the bad roads and everything else that that woman's not going to be able to get to the hospital when it is time. So we get close enough. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's close enough to your due date. We'll just schedule you to come in for the C-section so you don't go into labor. And so it it was kind of like one of those like, no, 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 don't pick up all of our bad habits. Like you Mm -hmm. had this system where your community was supporting and and doing great work in, in your culture and your community that's culturally appropriate and everything else. And now you've kind of bought into this white ridiculous system of how medicine should be delivered. And it's really hurting your, your people and your town. Right. I think that, cause I can't speak to Belize in and of itself, but I know that a lot of that often in different areas, and I can definitely speak to it here in the U S yeah. uh-huh. um, has to do with the policies that become created. Like mm-hmm. it's literally, it is a, it is practicing a felony without, a license if you attend a, birth, a home birth in the state of Ohio. It's, it can okay. be charged as practicing a felony mm-hmm. without a license, mm-hmm. which means it's going to deter a lot of us from wanting to even think about facilitating that practice. And most definitely, if you already carry a different medical license, because that puts you up on a whole different level. Yeah. 
I mean, we're talking that can, you can actually be charged as that as the pregnant person that's giving birth, you can be charged with that. Now, do they apply it as consistently? No, they don't necessarily enforce it in that way, but there are times and it's really subjective. So you Mm. never know (laughs) when it's going to happen. And those are the things that we talk about that like destroy cultures. It's because you've got these entities and this system of white supremacy that have literally built themselves into the actual policies of this country and of other countries, because it's global, Mm -hmm. and create this atmosphere where, one, we know better than you do, so you want to follow our standard. And two, if you don't want to follow our standard, we're going to make it so that you'll be punished for not following our standard. And then it gets back into that revolving conversation in regards to capitalism and money. I mean, the expenditures in the U.S. alone are just yeah. absolutely ridiculous. So yeah, I hear you. And, and it's a both and. Mm-hmm. It's really, really challenging. Because if it was up to me, I would, be, I would more than likely be doing um, home birth midwifery all the time. You know, and making sure that I could be there with my client if they chose to go into the hospital or if we chose to make that. But there's no way that I could because I can't go to jail. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just, I can't go to jail. Then what happens with my kids? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, and I mean, and that speaks to kind of this world we're living in now with kind of all the Supreme Court stuff and yeah. the possibility of Roe getting gutted and abortion becoming nearly universally illegal in a lot of different states and different swaths of the entire United States. And so, you know, the impact on the medical community on not being able to treat a patient the way that you as whatever level of medical professional you are think that that patient should be treated. Right. You know, you would like to attend more home birth because you think that'd be great for the people that want to do it that way. low risk or not, you know what I mean? If you qualify, Yes. And to the same way, like a doctor thinks, oh, this patient needs an abortion. Well, I can't do that anymore either, or I'm risking going to jail. It's super interesting. I, you know, I just did an interview um, with the Columbus Alive. I don't know when it's coming out, Erica. Maybe I wasn't supposed to say anything yet. Um, with Monica McLemore from University of California, San Francisco, who's a really great friend and colleague, and I consider an her an amazing like, human being. She's amazing. General. That's right. You <laughs> She's so great. She's amazing. Love everything about Monica. But like, she sums it up really well. When I start going off in my tangent, she's like, right here, one sentence. Patients have the right to medically accurate information, mm-hmm. period. That's it. And so when we're talking about this in regards to Roe versus Wade, which is interesting also to me because, yes, I clearly advocate that you know this should not be overturned by the Supreme Court. And I want those that advocate for that to understand that like Roe versus Wade wasn't necessarily created for us as black women no, either. Like there, there's not. all of these other, mm-hmm. it's becoming an issue. And now we're really talking about this more from a reproductive justice framework because it is starting to impact what is considered that like normative white female feminist kind of mm-hmm. um, um, group, which is fine, but also remember all of the rest of it because mm-hmm. you know, it's challenging, but you know, like as, as from a, the best objective place that I can come from and being a nurse and talking about it in that way is that the only job that we have is to give medically accurate information. Um, I've had clients that I've been really clear with, like, I don't know that this is actually viable and I'm concerned about your health. And I think that we should hear all of the other Mm -hmm. potential options that you have, and this is what the side effect could be, and like really delving deep into like here are all of the options. Mm-hmm. If we got to take an hour or two to do this, we will. Yeah. 
and they've made decisions that I didn't necessarily agree with from a nursing standpoint or from a medical advisement standpoint. But at the end of the day, again, it's not my business. My business is to support you Mm -hmm. in whatever decision you make, just like it's my business to support the fact that you've had a headache for three days Mm -hmm. and you're five days postpartum and you're saying that you're having little blind spots. And I'm going to take that seriously because what doesn't happen in my head that happens frequently when we're talking about implicit bias and institutional racism is that in a medical professional's head, they will consider those symptoms normal for being black. Well, this is just, you know, you had preeclampsia. And so, mm-hmm. of course, you're going to have some of these issues afterward. And, and you know, just give it a few days and you'll be fine. Like, it's just, it's just your body clearing out of toxins. You know what? Maybe it's not. Yeah. It may not be. And that's part of the issue that, that uh, when we're talking about the USA Today article, we're talking about the woman that died in Florida, Crystal. Yes. The, and we'll put that in show notes, but yeah. Crystal Galloway um, had given birth by a C-section uh, six days before she died. Um, there's several incidences uh, here in these articles of, you know, women who, who died... And, and had symptoms that they were mm-hmm. telling, you know, telling doctors about. Yeah. Well, in her case, she was talking about, they, they actually talked about how, like, the EMTs that came were more concerned with whether or not she could pay for the ambulance ride than her health and what, what was happening to her body. And her mom just finally gave up and drove her to the hospital because the EMTs were treating them so horrifically badly just assuming that they couldn't afford the ambulance ride and basically refusing to treat her. And there may have been stabilizing protocols that could have been done in that mm-hmm. ambulance that would have potentially saved her. And we don't know all of the story. I hate that statement. We don't know all of the no. story, but the reality is, I mean, the reality is, is that that conversation should have never happened. No. Ever. They should have um, took, I mean, from what it sounds like in that article, they should have taken one look at her because she passed out in the bathtub. I mean, she was unconscious. There wasn't any, oh, my head hurts. She was unconscious for a long period of time. They should take one look at her, thrown her on a gurney and been off to the hospital. Gone. Like, that is a situation where even as an untrained person, you're out because she needs medical care. And it's unfortunate to say, and this is probably one of those things that I, I always compare it to like, law enforcement and like the, the blue cone, mm-hmm. like you're not supposed to talk outside of your profession. And I also have talked a great deal with Monica about this and the fact that like, it is our responsibility to be really clear. It's not the first time. I mean, I've seen mm-hmm. that myself. I've seen the refusal of care because, um, there's been, um, issues basically with ego with like a patient denying a certain service and then changing their mind 30 minutes later and saying, you know what, I think I really do want this service. That doesn't mean that you wait another two hours just to punish them. Mm -hmm. The fact that like I've seen medics cup show up at homes for various different situations, um, typically actually not birth because we don't have that (laughs) happen with our organization as much. Um, But, and just literally go into that conversation of, you know, well, Maybe you really don't need to go. You're not here to diagnose. You're here to mm-hmm. treat. Yeah. In this instance in Florida, it says Hillsborough County deputies and paramedics questioned, they were the ones questioning if she mm. could afford the $600 cost mm-hmm. for a three-block ambulance ride and suggested that uh, the woman had been drinking. <laughs> I, so, I can't. Yeah. 
Uh, I really, I just, I can't. I mean, I, I wish that yeah. there was something that I could mm-hmm. say tangible to address that. And really, all I can say is, is that I can't. That's blatant. Mm-hmm. It has a significant amount to do with racism. You can't tell me anything different. I don't care if there was a black EMT on that ambulance. Mm-hmm. There's all different forms of racism that that occur. You can't brush this away. You literally killed that woman. Mm-hmm. And it happens all the time. It happens all the time. Yes. We're dying for no reason. For no reason. Other than arrogance. Mm-hmm. Uh, something I've heard you say, and maybe this would have been a good uh, introduction to the conversation. <laughs> um, I've seen you uh, on Facebook uh, point to different infant mortality articles and whatever that discuss cribs. And you're like, it's not about the crib. Can you expand upon that? Why is it? What's it's up one with of, the crib? Oh, I'm going to get in so much trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about safe sleep. We're, we're yeah. past the cutoff for the radio shows. You can swear now if you want. Okay. <laughs> um... Uh, there is a hashtag that I will sometimes use. So if you pull it up, you'll you'll see it. And and I've used it with the organization. It's a safety, not safe sleep. Okay. Um. So let's be clear. I'm going to be really clear about this. Like there are issues with safe sleep. Um. In Franklin County alone, we've had this like tremendous amount of work that has happened that has decreased the safe sleep incidences when it comes to infant mortality. And then suddenly, you know, and we're starting to see a rise in them again. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things that I think isn't necessarily as 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 public as it should be is the fact that a lot of these incidences, when we're talking about issues with safe surrounding safe sleep, have to do with some other co-committant issue, meaning there's been some type of alcohol use or drug use or smoking or the baby's been laid inside of a, a, you know, been put in a couch or, you know what I mean, like laying on a couch. And then there's, so there can be some issues with that. Yes. But it is not anywhere close to the number one reason why in particular, and this is what I always speak to unapologetically, um, why it is that we have the black infant mortality rate that we do. And it's been interesting because the more we've been talking about this out in the public, we have folks that are relating preterm and low birth weight to issues with safe sleep. And that's not where the connection happens. Uh, if you're talking about it from that perspective, then it's because there's, re- there's respiratory issues mm-hmm. or virtual lung development issues because of the child being preterm, but it's not because they've been sleeping with anything. So, um, you know, there are other schools of thought that consider what is safe sleep has to do with like safe co-sleeping. Um, it's about looking at the environment overall does, you know, does it, let's make sure that like if parents have to get rid of their bed because they've had some issues in their apartment, they're not sleeping on an air mattress, that somebody's actually replacing the bed. Right. You know what I mean? Safe co-sleeping and there's a co-sleeper that's next to you. Um, it's, it's one of the easiest things to address because in, to address that, you can make some changes in the statistics when you're talking about them overall. But when you talk about them in the gap which is what we always do. We talk about the disparity gap. What you see is, and in particular during uh, 2016, we saw a pretty significant drop in safe sleep. 2017 again, and uh, drop in safe sleep um, related deaths. We saw that there was still this steady increase with black infants or it stayed exactly the same. And that has to do with the fact that our number one issue with black infant mortality has to do with preterm low birth weight babies. They're born too soon and they're born too small. And the reason that that happens is because of all of the other things, which is the conversation that we're just starting to have here, but not having nearly enough. And and those of us that have been doing this work have been having for years, is that you can't create a healthy environment where you're going to have a full-term pregnancy 
if you're not taking care of that black woman first and understanding what all of the issues are surrounding that healthy pregnancy. It becomes like a blame game thing. It becomes a mommy blame game. Like somehow it's always our fault. It's kind of interesting because like my child's father was white. But it was still, well, you could be at more, you know, and it's just like off the top, like, you're, you're, you know, we see that African-American women are more at risk for these things. But that's not the whole picture. And that's still like placing this level of blame and stress on us that isn't really our burden in that level of relationship. Um, and so I feel that it's really important as a public health professional, as a nurse, and most importantly, as my validity as a black woman that has lived in this experience that we listen to what black women say. That's it. Like that's that listen to black women, listen to what they are saying. Um, we're pretty clear about what's going on with our bodies and what's happening. And if we take the time to eliminate one of the, well, actually the number one factor related to black infant mortality, if we take the time to address not having preterm and low birth weight infants, then what we would see from a logical perspective and a trend perspective is that those rates would go down. We just need the opportunity to be able to get to full term. Mm -hmm. And the unfortunate part of it is, is that that's also part of some of the levels of implicit bias is that there's automatic assumption that like, because you're black and you're more at risk to have a preterm infant, that it's just kind of, it's become a little bit too norm. Mm -hmm. Like it's not an outrageous conversation. Folks aren't moved but lots of folks are moved by it. But a lot of times those of us in the medical profession from observation and from care aren't necessarily moved by that. It's kind right. of like, a, well, that's just what happens. Mm -hmm. And that's not, it's not true. Right. Well, and that gets me into something. And one of, one of the biggest flips in my brain, because I had a friend who's had a couple of friends actually that have had babies in NICUs. Mm -hmm. Most of the time near full term, like bigger babies, but having like eating at the same time as drink, you know, yeah, that was us. breathing <laughs> problems. Like right. you know, my friend was joking about how she was washing up one day and like the two moms who had been there forever cause they had teeny, teeny, tiny babies. Like were like, Oh my God, did you hear there's a seven pound baby in the NICU? And my friend right. just like, la 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 over here, wash her hands. Like that's mine. But you know, when, when, so when you have somebody who has a NICU baby, you hear about lazy white boy syndrome. And you like, and, and it becomes this kind of joke of, yeah, white men just know they're going to have an easy ride this whole time. So they just get to be lazy in the NICU and everything else. And I hadn't really thought about before talking to you and reading other things about it, what impact that then has on the black babies in that NICU. So if you don't know what the lazy, expectation of resilience, yeah, that, mm -hmm. you know, so in the NICU situation, you know, white boys are the laziest are the, you know, the, the ones that don't eat and, and breathe at the same time and need more care and attention and everything else. White girls behind that black girls and then black boys at the very other end who are resilient and can take care of themselves, you know, and the, the line I was told, you know, because they'll know they have a hard time their whole life. But then if that black baby is struggling over there, it's oh, he'll, the exact he'll, same care. Yeah. He'll take care of it. Yeah. He'll take care of it on his own. And so one of those flips in my brain that, you know, as I've been thinking about it is, is that like from the joking about white boys being lazy all the time to this, wait, that means that these other babies are getting left out in the NICU and how that racism just plays in from the very moment these teeny tiny babies are born and the impact it has on their lives. Yeah. Just, I mean, I think it has an impact from the, from the beginning yeah. and the development uh -huh. of neural tube and, you know, there was there was there's been articles and research that have very that have spoken very clearly to that. Like there's this 
whether it's implicit or explicit, I have my own opinion, but I will (laughs) allow that to stand, that there is this level of resiliency that black infants have. Mm -hmm. And so therefore aren't necessarily being given the exact same care in the NICU or are being given a care that doesn't necessarily engage the parents in the same way when the parents are... I just had a conversation about this yesterday with one of my um, speaking coaches from TEDx. And, uh, (laughs) you know, just like, if we're doing the research for our own child and we have this distinct understanding of what it is that our child needs, then you just need to do it. And the fact that we even have to get to the place of having to ask for it because again, there is this whole concept of like, oh, well, there's, there's lazy white boy syndrome. But then that means there has to be resilience here. Mm-hmm. Well, then what are you missing? What are you not doing? Because trust me, there's always going to be circumstances where we're going to need some level of intervention. I get that. I don't think that we need nearly as much as we do if we were to address some of these other issues to begin mm-hmm. with. But there's always going to be some inter- type of intervention. And I'm grateful for those that are specialized in being able to do that work. And... If you're specialized in being able to do that work, you need to be really conscious of yourself and make sure that you are give, doing that work based upon not just equality, but levels of equity. Mm-hmm. Like you have to apply that. You have to apply it and you have to be conscious of it. And you have to admit it. You have to, you have to deal with your own shit, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> we all need to deal with our own shit. <laughs> uh, if people want to get involved with Root... What's what's next for you guys? What are you doing? What are you working on? So we will be doing um, upcoming. We have um, Black Breastfeeding Week, which starts on August 25th, and we're getting ready to put that out on the website and Facebook, Twitter, um, Instagram. You can find us on all of those mediums. It'll give some information about. We're going to have live tweet chat. Um, we're going to be able to do um, a yoga class. Again, these are very specifically for Black women or women of color. Um, so, you know, this is a, the organization itself is a huge honored safe space. We are very unapologetic about the fact that we are black women led reproductive justice organization serving women of our community. Mm -hmm. Um, so literally Mm -hmm. applying, establishing equity. Um, and if you have questions, we do have, um, we're in the middle of developing almost finished actually developing our, uh, comprehensive sexual and reproductive health. Um, cl- um, program, which is going to actually awesome. involve um, young people and adults. So that's what makes um, we feel makes us a little unique is that um, it's going to be a 10 to 12 week process, but it's going to involve both the adults and the young people because so often we put it off on young people. Like you need to learn more about your own sexual health or we utilize abstinence as a way of teaching that. <laughs> but we don't recognize that often us as adults have difficulty with actually even communicating about our own sexual health, let alone being able to communicate that for our children as they're coming up. So we've got that coming up in this next, we're hoping to launch that by the, just before what would be just before Christmas break for the school year, start to really do some levels of recruitment around that. Always looking to expand um, our doula services. So we highly recommend that you um, refer any woman that even just has questions um, please make sure that you refer um, them to Root. Um, and our website is www.root, that's with two T's, so R-O-O-T-T dot org. Link in the show notes. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. And you're doing a TED Talk in September. Oh, gosh, yeah. Do it. That's, yeah. I'm going to be on vacation. I'm I so do- sad, so I'm going to need a recording of this. Um, I am going to be, I, I am lucky enough to be able to be with this really amazing group of speakers um, and this TED, um, TEDx, KLB, King Lincoln, 
Bronzeville um, is being organized basically and put together um, by Dr. Melissa Crum. And um, most folks know him as Speak Williams, but Kaleem. Um, and uh, who I just was getting some amazing coaching. There's my plug. Is getting some amazing coaching from. Like he literally changed my whole world as far as how I'm even going to give like medical. You know, like when I'm going and doing, uh, you know, speaking engagements or keynotes. I'm like this whole thing makes so much sense. <laughs> um, so we'll be doing that on September 8th um, at East High School. So highly recommend that you. Check it out. Get your tickets. Actually, there's actually a discount right now if you Sweet. purchase it. Just put in the word create um, because that's the theme of our TEDx. So I'm really, I'm, I'm very excited about that. I think it's going to be fun and I'm a little nervous, but it'll, it'll be right. <laughs> it'll be <Yeah>. fabulous. <laughs> Do you have any other questions before I go through our events? No, we should go through our events. Okay. Um, so links for all of this information and everything about Roots in the show notes. Uh, this Saturday, August 4th, Donald Trump uh, is coming to Delaware. Uh, So we're going to be joining some folks who are protesting uh, Trump. Um, uh, And then there's other protests uh, to, um, you know, trying to pose the Kavanaugh nomination to the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. Um, August 9th in Cincinnati and August 9th in Columbus. Um, August 8th. I'm going in non-chronological order here, <laughs> August 8th in Toledo. Um, and uh, then we've got a series of events called The Road Show, R-O-E apostrophe D. Um, mm, I saw that. Uh, so cute. <laughs> August 13th in Columbus, August 23rd in Dayton, August 30th in uh, Cincinnati. Um, Cleveland and Toledo dates coming up. Yes. Um, so links to all of these and more uh, are going to be in the show notes. Um, Gabe, why is Donald Trump coming to Delaware on Saturday. Is there something happening Tuesday? Uh, yes, there's a special election on Tuesday uh, for people who live in from Clintonville to Delaware and then on over in this weird sort of oddly yeah, gerrymandered district. It's the northern suburbs of Columbus, a little bit of Clintonville and north, and then Delaware County, and then all the way basically out to Zanesville. So if you're in CD12, vote for Danny O'Connor on Tuesday or before then at early vote. Yes, he's imbor- been endorsed by... Uh, Barack Obama, Sherrod Brown, and NARAL Pro-Choice America. <laughs> Yay! So, um, yeah, so that should be that should be interesting. Yes, we'll see. We'll talk about those results next week. Huh. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, so Jessica Roach, thank you very much for joining us this week. Thank you. This thank was you a treat. Yes. I'm going to show this to my mom, and she's going to be so uh, cool. If, you, if I get mom, when you get mom approval, you kind of come to uh-huh. age. It's cool. Oh, she's going to tell everybody about this. <laughs> yeah. No, she's going to be thrilled. Great. So, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you both so much. We appreciate it. Thanks. Cool. All right. We'll see everybody next week. Bye. Bye.